Hey everyone, you're listening to the Her Head and Films podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin. In this podcast, I share my personal musings and feelings about cinema, usually art house and world cinema. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, as I said, my name's Caitlin. I am a writer, a blogger, um, I consider myself a dreamer. I love literature, art, poetry, and in the last few years I've developed an obsession with cinema, especially art house, world cinema. And um, I live in a rural area in the South here in the United States, and I don't really have access to any kind of cinephile culture. I don't have an art house cinema nearby where I live. So I really don't have anyone to talk to about films or any way to share my passion for them. And so I created this podcast as an outlet for my thoughts and feelings about the various movies that I watch. If you're a returning listener, I really appreciate um, that you are listening to the podcast and that you enjoy the episodes. That means everything to me. And um, I really like to think of this podcast as a as a way of reaching out, a way of trying to connect with people. This podcast does have a Patreon, uh, so that those of you who listen, if you want to, you can financially help to sustain the podcast. I've done about 20 episodes, um, so I've I've used up a lot of storage and stuff, so I am having to pay to continue the podcast. And so you can find our my Patreon at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. At different amounts, you can really become part of the podcast. You can vote on things that I review. You can recommend a film to me and I'll review it. You can get a postcard from me. So there's different levels that you can um, do your pledge at and you can really be part of the podcast, which is what I would love for you to do. Um, for just $1 a month, you get access to patron-only content on the website of patreon.com. And I have a mini-podcast that I've started where I'll do shorter episodes that are maybe 10 to 15 minutes long. And I also am going to try to post some reviews and some just some different stuff, some goodies and that you can take advantage of. Uh, there's also one level that you can donate for, and that's to get a shout-out on the podcast. So I would like to give a shout-out to three patrons, uh, Carolyn, Michelle, and Jesse. Thank you so much for being patrons of the podcast, and I really do appreciate you. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing, um, to see the support that I do receive for the, for the podcast and to see maybe the impact that it's having on other people. That's a really amazing, moving, touching thing for me. So thank you, Michelle, Carolyn, and Jesse. You're all really wonderful and I appreciate you. So today's episode, um, it's going to be a double feature really. It's about two films that I watched this week. And they are both um, Iranian films about children. <clears throat> and the first is Willow and Wind by Muhammad Ali Talebi. And that came out in the year 2000. And then the other film is Where Is My Friend's House, which is by Abbas Kuristami, and it came out in 1987. What connects these two films, besides the fact that they're about young boys, about eight, eight, year, eight years old, is that Kiristami, he directed Where Is My Friend's House, but he also wrote 
willow and wind. And so I want to look at how childhood is shown in these films, how Kuristami gives a very touching and authentic portrayal of children. And um, I think both of these films are very special and, and very beautiful. And um, whereas My Friend's House was done in 1987, Willow and Wind was done in 2000. So they're about 13 years apart, but they have a lot of commonalities about them. And um, I saw both of them on Filmstruck, if you are curious about where I saw them. If you know about, um, many of you may already know about Abbas Kuristami. He was really a giant of world cinema, of Iranian cinema. And, um, I mean, I'm not going to go into, like, deep, uh, deep biographical background about him. Um, but he's certainly one of my favorite directors. And he was part of the Iranian New Wave, um, which started in the late 1960s. And I'm reading this from Wikipedia. And those who were part of the Iranian New Wave, they used poetic dialogue and allegorical storytelling dealing with political and philosophical issues. I would say a few other hallmarks of Kuristami cinema is his use of amateur actors, his focus on sort of rural Iranian village life, his also his blending of fact and fiction. Um, several of his films could be called docu docu fiction, I think it's called, where it's sort of it's based on real events, but it seems like a documentary, but it's not a documentary because it's these are staged scenes. So he's always playing with cinema, and he's always blurring those lines between genres. I think so. We lost him in 2016. He was 76, year, 76 years old, born in 1940. And so I've been watching his films this week because it was recently his birthday, because it's late June 2017. So he was born June 22nd, and then he died July 4th, 2016. So I've been sort of going back to his films, watching them, and I've just really enjoyed that, and it's been a really great experience this week. Um, in the films that I talk about, I will talk about various plot points of the film, and so there may be spoilers. So I do want to warn you about that. I will also say that I'm struggling with depression right now. I'm someone who, I'm very open about it, that I have mental illness and that I struggle with anxiety and depression. And I've struggled with those things for much of my life, even when I was a child. So if I don't, if this isn't one of my better episodes, that's why. If I sound kind of maybe monotone or if I sound kind of down or... I really wanted to talk about these films. I didn't, if I wait too long, if I wait, you know, till I'm feeling better or the depression is gone, which I don't know when that could be. I'm just in a very deep episode right now where I just feel really like empty and hollow and I physically feel it too. I'm very tired. I'm just exhausted. You know, I just, life exhausts me <laughs> and, um, I'm just not in a great place right now. Um, but I wanted to talk about these films. I didn't want too much time to go by before I talked about them. And, and with his birthday having happened and then 
I just I think this is the perfect time to do it and so I'm just trying to push through it and I'm just trying to feel like well maybe if I talk about films for a little while that will help in some way I don't know but nothing's really helping me right now and um yeah I just have to pull through it I don't have any kind of access to any kind of mental health care or anything like that <laughs> I don't have insurance so I'm just trying to pull through it you know what I mean just survive it somehow it, sometimes life is just survival for me I just get in that mode where I just have to get through it so I'd really like to talk about these films though so I'm going to start with Where Is My Friend's House and as I said directed by Abbas Kiristami came out in 1987 it's set in northern Iran I think in a town called Koker and or a region called Koker and it's about a young boy. Just give me one second. Yeah, I just want to make sure I have the names correct. I made notes, and so I just want to double check. Yeah. It's about eight-year-old Ahmed who accidentally takes home the notebook of his friend. The notebook is where they do their homework. His friend is named Muhammad. Ahmed knows that Muhammad will get in trouble for not having his homework done in that particular notebook. There's a scene at the beginning of the film that sets that up for us. Shows the teacher warning Muhammad that if he doesn't have the notebook the next day, then he will probably be expelled from school. Um, so Ahmed goes home, he's like helping his mother with chores and taking care of his like baby sibling and um, so he's doing his homework and then he realizes that he has Mohammed's uh, notebook. He tells his mom that he needs to take the notebook back to Muhammad, but his mom really doesn't want him to go. She just says, well, that's his problem you know he doesn't have his notebook too bad but when she's not looking Ahmed sneaks off and much of the film and like a lot of Kiristami's films this is like a, a quest film it's a journey like um, Ahmed's big quest is to find Muhammad's house he asks villagers he asks neighbors it's like in another town um, no one seems to know where this family lives or they don't know the family too well and so a lot of the film is of Ahmed you know running through this landscape it's very dry and arid very mountainous and rural because it's in rural Iran he is not able to connect with Muhammad or to find Muhammad's home and so the next morning um, we see Muhammad in class but we don't see Ahmed and so um, the teachers going around checking the homework you know and and you know it's like it's a very tense moment you're like you know what's gonna happen here this little boy doesn't have the notebook is he gonna be expelled well just in time Ahmed arrives even though he's a little late and he has both the notebooks and he ended up doing Muhammad's homework for him and so it it seemed to me like he probably stayed up for a little while at night and um and did the homework so he did his homework and he did Muhammad's in their separate notebooks 
and the teacher is looking through the notebooks. He grades the homework and he says that they did a great job. And so disaster is averted um, at the end. So it's it's this very simple but this very moving story about a child's sense of responsibility to his friends. What struck me was the difference between the children and the adults because when he tells his mother that Muhammad is not going to have his notebook, the mother just kind of shrugs it off. She doesn't really care. She just says, well, you know, too bad. She sort of blames Muhammad. But inside, Ahmed knows that there's something wrong about this setup, that Muhammad didn't do anything wrong, and that he shouldn't be punished for something like this when it's just a mistake. And it seemed to me like the child in the situation sort of had more of a moral compass than the adults. And I think that's a, I think that's a common theme that a lot of us can relate to, that it always seems like children sometimes have a better sense of morality than adults do. Ahmed just has this very strong sense of right and wrong and it seems like maybe some of the adults around him have lost that in, in their lives. It's really a film about sacrifice the way that um, and generosity and how generosity I guess can come through sacrifice that Ahmed sacrifices his time by staying up late to do Muhammad's homework and it's a generous act that Ahmed does and and gives that gift to Muhammad because he feels a, a responsibility and an obligation and he doesn't want to see Muhammad get hurt he doesn't want to see him be expelled from school and this film as I said was set in a rural Iranian village and I thought it was really interesting and obviously I don't want to know I don't know if they're considered poor but it's a rural area and it does seem like a very it does seem like you know working class probably you know people struggling financially people who don't have a lot of money and um, you could really see the struggle that the children had between going to school maintaining their studies and then when they got home having to help their families financially or not necessarily financially but just help their families like Ahmed had to help his mom with his baby sibling and he had to do a lot of chores and I think there's a scene where like there, there's like a child that has to do like farm work or something for his family and he's instead of doing his homework he has to do this farm work and so you see how at a young age these children are, are very torn it's like they know that they need to get their education and that that could maybe provide a better life for them but then they're in the like the immediate economic circumstances of having to help their families something that struck me too I mean here in the West and here in the United States we tend to idealize childhood and we tend to want to shield children from difficult things and something that struck me about watching these Iranian films with children in them was that it seemed to me like from a very early age maybe there is a lot expected of Iranian children in that society that they are expected to maybe do adult things like I'll talk about this in the next film Willow and Wind um, where a little boy breaks a window and he's expected to fix the window and so it seemed to me like a lot of times some of these children were put in like there was a lot expected of them 
you know, although I guess you could argue that here in the United States too, but, um, they, they had a lot of pressure on them as children, it seemed like, and they felt to me like they were already like little adults, you know, and, and, um, that was just something that came off to me. I was really impressed with Ahmed's sort of persistence, like, even when he's running around, he's asking people where Muhammad's home is, and he can't find it. He doesn't have directions. He doesn't have an address. He is just so persistent and doesn't really want to give up. And, and even when he's not able to find the house, he, he comes up with another solution of, well, I'll do the homework for both of us, and then that'll be a way to solve the problem. Just shows that resilience of children, I think. I mean, I myself, when I was watching this, it sort of reminded me of like when I was in school and, you know, I think we all had that dreaded moment when the teacher would come around and they were checking to see if you had done your homework. And I mean, it could be a really humiliating moment if you'd forgotten to do it or, or maybe you weren't able to do it and sort of this sense of like public shame. And you see that in the opening scene with Muhammad that he's like, he's being singled out by the teacher and it's this very vulnerable moment for him and he's crying I mean he's just sitting at his desk crying it's like I've never I don't know if I've seen a child be quite that vulnerable in a film and um to see a little boy cry it's not something that we often see and and um you really I think that hammers home the desperation of the situation that so that when Ahmed is trying to get the notebook to him, you realize that the stakes are very high. That, I mean, I thought it was a bit extreme, you know, just because a kid doesn't have a notebook that you would expel them. I mean, that sort of shocked me a bit. It just felt very harsh to me, you know. But um, those were just the expectations, I guess, that were placed on, on children at that time. Um, so I just thought this was such an authentic film, really about children and about the morality of a child and how they actually can sometimes be have a much better awareness of their own humanity and how they treat other people i mean i don't think it's any surprise that with a lot of these political movements if you see like the way millennials i think there have been articles written about how millennials are some of the most we're very politically engaged and very anti-capitalist and very like you know wanting universal health care and wanting a fair wage you know the fight for 15 and i don't think it's any surprise that younger people have those views because i just think when you're young and you're a teenager and i think a lot of people lose it as they get older unless they try to hold on to it you have this sense of empathy i think and you have this sense of outrage and you have this sense of why is the world the way it is and how can we change it? You know, a lot of people will see certain issues and say, well, that's just the way life is. That's just the way the world is. I would say that's probably 95% of the people at this point. But there's those of us, maybe we're holding on to something from our childhood where we're, where we're still outraged. Where we're like, well, why does it have to be that way? And why can't we change it? And, of course, the people in power don't want it changed, and they're very threatened by, I think, young people who, I think, often have a deeper sense of morality and a deeper sense of, well, we need to be taking care of everybody. We need to be paying everybody a living wage. We need universal health care. We need 
a different model outside of capitalism. And so that was something really beautiful about Ahmed was his sense of morality, his sense of right and wrong. And you just hope to God he doesn't lose it when he grows up or something. Like, ugh. So, yeah. It's such a film about friendship and connection and really being there for someone. I mean, how rare is that to have someone who absolutely is there for you that you can completely rely on, you know? I mean, Ahmed has got Muhammad. You know, he has got his back, as they say, and he is... He is going to help his friend no matter what. And that's like a really beautiful portrait of friendship, right? I just really loved that. I really loved this film. And it's interesting, when Kiristami died last year, I watched a documentary that showed how he went back to, I think, uh, maybe not the exact village, but he went back to meet the actor who played Ahmed. And his name was Babak Ahmedpour. Yeah, Babek, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, Babek. Um, and he found him, and he was all grown up. He was probably in his 20s or something, and he actually was a little bit, I don't want to say resentful, but I think he thought that being in the film would change his life. I think he thought that maybe he would be in more films, that he would maybe become a star or or maybe his life would sort of go a different way and it hadn't i think he was sort of at an ordinary regular job and i mean i wouldn't say he was mean or anything or or hateful towards kiristami but he i got this sense that he was a little bit ambivalent about his fame because he was i guess famous for being that child in that movie but he hadn't been in a lot of other films i mean he's in through the Olive Trees, which is uh, another film that Kiristami did in 1994. But it, it was a very interesting scene where Kiristami goes to meet him after all these years, and, you know, his life is, is sort of very ordinary and, and maybe not what he had hoped that it would be, you know. And um, I just thought that was kind of interesting. But he was so good in this film, and he was not a trained actor, and he was an amateur, and I think Kiristami brought out a lot of sweetness, and but also a seriousness. Like he doesn't smile a lot in the film. He's very he's very resolute about what he has to do, and um, he's very serious. He just seemed like a little adult in many ways. So the second film that I want to talk about is Willow and Wind. This film came out in the year 2000. It's by Muhammad Ali Talebi, and it, the screenplay was by Abbas Kiristami. And it is another film set in Iran, in a, in a rural Iranian village. So it starts with a new boy who arrives in the class. His name's Reza. He is from a very dry, arid climate in Iran that rarely gets any rain. And on the day that he arrives in this new class, it is raining. And he goes to sit at a desk and the rain is sort of pouring on him a little bit. And everybody who's by the window, because earlier a little boy, oh, probably a week or two ago, a little boy had um, broken the window. 
and he is not allowed to come back into the class until he fixes the window. Um, his father's not able to do it. His father works a lot, and so it really falls on the little boy. I would say these kids are maybe 10 or 11, maybe a little bit older than Ahmed was in Where Is My Friend's House. So he's not able to come back to class until he's fixed that window. And if he doesn't fix the window by the end of the day, then he's going to be expelled. But it's interesting because the first scenes of the film are not about that little boy. They're about Reza, the new boy. And his fascination with the rain. He's rarely seen it in his life because of where he originally grew up in Iran. And so... He, he just can't stop looking at it and he's so entranced by it and the teacher tells him well you're distracting the class you're not paying attention to the lesson and so he sends the boy outside and he basically says you know get your fill of the rain and then you can come back in and we'll you know and you can continue so Reza goes outside and he's got his hand out, he's touching the rain, he's got this huge smile on his face, he's playing in it. It's it's just this beautiful moment. Like it just enchanted me when I was watching it, watching Reza just fall in love with the rain. It's such a small thing, but when it's when it's taken through the eyes of a child, through the lens of a child, you know, the ordinary can become extraordinary. And to them, it's not, to them, it's it's amazing and it's wondrous. I mean, you've seen it every day for your entire life in your adulthood. But for these children, or for a child that hasn't seen rain very much, it's this glorious new experience. And Talebi captured that beautifully in this film. And Kiristami wrote it. So, for me, it's like this mixture of Talebi and Kiristami, really, even though I know Kiristami only wrote the film. Um, so, when Reza is outside playing in the rain, he meets the boy who's been banished from the class for breaking the window. He had hit the window with a ball or something. So, he hears the boy's story about how, you know, he has to fix this window by the end of the day. He needs money for the glass. And so Reza offers to loan him the money to buy the glass for the window. And they set off to the to um, Reza's home. They even uh, hitchhike to Reza's dad's workplace where he gets the money from his dad. And so that's at that point Reza is no longer in the story. So he's really just kind of... He's someone who helps facilitate the little boy in buying the glass and gives him the money for it. So the rest of the film is focused entirely on this young boy and his quest to get the glass, to get it back to the school, to fix the window. So like Where Is My Friend's House, there is a friendship component of the film of these two two young boys helping one another. But it's also a quest. Uh, sort of an odyssey that this child is on to make something right, which is this broken window. He goes by and sees his dad who works at a factory. 
um, class sort of comes into it a bit because when Reza went to see his own father, his father worked like as an engineer. So Reza's father is very sort of part of the professional class, upper class, I would say. Whereas this little boy's dad works in a factory. He's not able to take time off to go and fix the window himself. So it falls on the little boy to do it. So the little boy gets the glass and then there's this, this amazing section of the film where he has this pane of glass that he's carrying through the rugged rural Iranian landscape um, as it's raining, as it's windy. I mean, it's this very perilous and arduous journey that this child is going on. Again, I told myself, I was like, why would you expel a child over this? Like, <laughs> it never made sense to me, just like in Where's the Friend's House, like the notebook thing, you know, expelling a kid over a notebook, but this is just the story, you know. Um, once again, children put in positions where they have to be like adults, and it's very serious, and there's a lot put on them, a lot of pressure. So this kid is carrying this glass through wind, through rain, through... I mean, hills and valleys. I mean, he, just like Ahmed and Where Is My Friend's House, he is persistent. He is going to do this. Um, nothing is going to hold this kid back. At one point, a friend of his comes by on like a motorbike and he tries to hitch a ride with him, but he's too scared. The boy's like driving really fast and he's too scared that the glass is going to break. So he continues his trek on foot. He finally arrives back at the school, goes into the classroom, I mean, and the window is really high up. I mean, there is just obstacle after obstacle for this kid to to do this. And he stacks ben he stacks benches on the table to get to the glass. And um he is just determined to get to it. It's really high up think at one point he falls and um he's trying to install the glass he needs a hammer to nail it in place the hammer dropped on the floor um he thinks the glass will hold while he goes down and gets the hammer off the floor he thinks he, he thinks he can do it but of course it doesn't boomer boom boom That's my dog barking. Boom, boom. Oh, Lord. I may have to take a break. One moment. I will be back. Boom, boom. I'm going to put you up. Boomer, come on. Interrupting my podcast. <laughs> Go up. Thank you. <sighs> All right. I'm back. Alrighty. <laughs> the show must go on. The podcast must go on. Okay. 
So the glass shatters, and when this happens, my heart sank. The little kid, like, the look of despair that comes over his face. He's just, for a moment, he has just completely, like, crestfallen. That the glass has broken. Um, but he sees the clock. And the man that made the glass for him, that cut it, he doesn't go home until like 7 o'clock or something. And it's not 7 yet. I think it's like 6.30 or 6. And um, so he knows it's still possible <laughs> that he could get back. So he's got to go all the way back across this terrain get to the man who makes the glass and and cuts it and of course he I, he doesn't really have the money so i don't know how he's going to pay for it but he he's going to do it he starts running he he finds a kid on a motorbike it might have been the same kid from before and the sky has turned pink it's got all these gorgeous clouds and he hitches his ride and he is off to do that journey all over again. Um, it's actually a really amazing moment at the end of the film. Because you think he's going to give up. I mean, I think most people would have. I think I probably would have. <laughs> I don't think I would have done that journey to begin with, really. Um, but this kid is just so persistent and... Um, that's the thing about kids is that I think at a certain age you are very resilient or you're more resilient than you think. I mean, I, I look back at things that I did as like, I don't know, what, eight, nine. <coughs> Boomer, stop. <coughs> boom, boom. Boomer. Shh. Shh. Everything's okay. All right. <laughs> My dog will not stop barking today. Um... Where was I? Yeah, like, I marvel at things that I did when I was, like, 8, 9, 10. How I just had no inhibitions or anything. And I just think back and I'm like, I can't believe I did that at that age. Like, I would never be able to do that now. I'd be mortified or I'd be scared. Or I think maybe as you get older, some of those, you start to censor yourself edit yourself think more about every move you make and and i i think also you're not as resilient because yeah when you're young i think it's easy to be resilient because not a lot has happened to you yet so when you're eight nine ten you don't tend to have gone through a lot you know i mean some kids do go through a lot i think a lot about like the refugees now who are in refugee camps around europe and I think a lot about what those children are going through. And not just in Europe, but there's, you know, there's refugee camps around the world. Um, I wonder about the toll that their experiences will take on them. And they do seem to be resilient, but I was listening to this story by NPR probably a week or two ago that talked about how even children... Um, are really struggling children refugees are really struggling there maybe cutting themselves they're seeing the adults around them sometimes are committing suicide because of the dire conditions and the dire situations that they're under so i do i think maybe when you're a child you you're able to survive it but then maybe as you get older 
maybe it starts to sink in more what happened and and often tragedies can accumulate you know something traumatic can happen to you when you're very young and up to that point that's all you've gone through but then after that point you've gone through that tragedy or that trauma and then more may come and more may accumulate and how do you continue to cope with those and what kind of resources do you have they were talking about how in a lot of these refugee camps there's no mental health people that they can talk to you know there's there's no one for them to turn to um there's certainly not the resources available to them um to help if maybe they're having depression or anxiety or PTSD or any number of things that they could be experiencing because of what they've been through and what they continue to go through I can't imagine going to another country where I don't know the language and maybe the populace there is very hostile to me and I'm living in squalor and I'm living in in degrading conditions in a camp and I can't imagine the toll that that takes on the mind and the body so I mean I think children are resilient to a point but I think some children go through really traumatic things too but this is a story really about a kid who's just incredibly persistent and strong and he's just not gonna give up on his on his quest to fix the glass window <laughs> and so he's a lot like Ahmed in that way from where is the friend's house I want to linger a bit on the opening scene with Reza watching the rain. I just really loved it. And it just, like I said before, it was enchanting to me. It reminded me of a field trip that I went on in middle school. And I still remember it. Um, I'm not exactly sure where we went on the field trip. That has completely gone away. But I remember that I was sitting alone on the bus, and you know these field trip buses, usually it's like two people to a seat. But I was sitting by myself because I didn't have any friends growing up. I was I was very alone, and um, people didn't want to sit with me. People didn't want to... I would often sit alone at lunch, and yeah, I mean it still hurts in a way because I think that loneliness persists even into my adulthood. I'm 27 now, and... So, I've just always had this distance from people, people not wanting to be around me or or to want to know me or talk to me or, so I've just always been very alone in my life and so this is an example of that where I was sitting on this bus alone and it was raining and I remember that um, I was looking out the window because I always loved to sit by the window when I was sitting on a bus like that. I always wanted the window seat because I just loved to look out the window at the world and as the world passed by and stuff and watch people and I remember looking at this window and the rain was falling on it and I remember being very entranced by the water droplets on the glass and it just entranced me and it was just a very intense sensation that I had of the beauty of these water droplets and of the rain and just I think in that moment I was so alone and I felt really ashamed that I was sitting by myself and that nobody was sitting with me and everybody else had somebody you know sitting with them they had a friend or a partner 
And so I had to retreat, I think, into my own world, into my head, into my inner life. And I've always had to do that. I think when you're on your own and you are alone in life, you go within. You go into your imagination. You go into your mind. You create a very, I think, rich inner world and inner life in order to cope with your loneliness and your marginalization and the ways in which people silence you and make you invisible. And I think that's what I was doing is that this was almost like my coping mechanism that instead of staring at that at that empty space beside of me in the seat, I stared at these water droplets and tried to feel some kind of connection with that and with the rain and the water and and it helped to I think take my mind off the hurt of the experience and the and the marginalization that I felt. And of course me sitting there falling in love with water droplets and rain was probably the reason I was sitting alone. <laughs> I was a very different person. I, I still feel very different and very I don't want to like I don't want to sink into this special snowflake thing like oh I'm so special you know I'm so much better than everybody else because I'm artistic and creative you know I, I don't want to put it that way you know I was just I was who I was I was really serious I was really studious and academic and intellectual and I was very shy and I still am I'm very introverted it's it's hard for me to talk to people and to connect to people and so people probably didn't know what to make of me, you know. I'm not blaming them. I'm not saying, well, oh, I was just this victim, you know, and people were terrible to me. I know people have been through much worse things than what I went through as a child. But I just always felt other. And I always felt different. And I always struggled to connect. And I think sometimes it can be hard when you are sensitive and tender and when you notice things in the world like rain, I think it and and rain excites you and and you see these ordinary things and they have meaning for you and and they entrance you. I think um I just think it can be hard when you notice things like that that most people pay no pay no attention to and you notice them and you you feel sensitive to certain things that don't affect other people the way that they affect you. So this film really made me think about my own childhood, about experiences that shaped me. I thought about how this little boy with the glass and his journey, I thought about how this is probably a defining experience for him, that he is being shaped by this. He's almost in a crucible in a way, and he's being shaped by this experience and the way he handles the glass and the way he handles the heartbreak of the glass shattering and what he does and how he reacts to that and I just felt like this was sort of a, a formative experience for him and perhaps that's what they wanted it to be in the film the filmmakers and I thought about different experiences that had shaped me and how I sort of became what I am today. I think I think maybe a lot is set for us in childhood. You know, the way we act in childhood or the decisions we make or the way we see ourselves. I think those things can persist into adulthood. And I think they can really affect us. And again, I thought this was a really authentic 
portrayal of children and how children can be very open to the world and open to new experiences like the rain. They can see things with new eyes because of their age and their youth and how those things become very new to them and also like I said their resilience. And um, also I, I again loved the rural setting of Iran. I really like the way um, Talebi was focusing on rural a rural setting. It reminded me a bit of Potter Panchali by Secha Jet Ray, which I do have a podcast episode about because I love that film. Again, that film was so revolutionary, especially in Indian cinema, because it focused on a rural family in a village. And you see something similar, I think, with Kiristami's films, especially how he shows children living in rural areas and how I would imagine that their experiences are a bit different from a child living in a big city in Iran. And him having to, the little boy in this film and Willow and Wind, having to face very difficult experiences in nature, in the wind, the rain, the landscape. Um, so that might be a different experience than for a child living in a city a, a bit, you know. I mean, both of these films really are about boys, little boys, facing a crisis, you know, facing a moral crisis in a way. Um, you know, with Ahmed, it's how can I get this notebook back to my friend and not being able to do that? How can I help my friend? How can I lessen the the fallout from him not having his notebook? And then with this one, it is um, how can I get this glass window fixed so that I don't get expelled from school? They are in moments of crisis, moments of no return that you know something is going to happen either to them or to a friend or someone they care about that is going to change their lives forever because school is important and you don't want to be expelled and i imagine that would be a very difficult thing for a child to to live with so they are in a in a crisis and they have to act they have to actively participate in their lives and they have to make very difficult decisions about what to do and how to proceed and they have to listen to themselves and listen to their own moral voice and their moral moral compass because once again the adults are just like something that struck me in where is my friend's house was that there were moments when Ahmed would be trying to talk to adults and they would not even acknowledge him they would not talk to him they would not even engage with him it's like he wasn't really there and you saw something sort of a little bit similar with the little boy in willow and wind where the adults are not going to help him his father can't help him his father's working at a factory the principal and the teacher isn't going to help him you know i mean I, I would imagine perhaps they could have fixed the window or paid for the window to be fixed but maybe they are on a budget and they don't have the means to do that but he is on his own, so is Ahmed, and where is my friend's house? Both of these boys are alone, except for their friends. There's Reza, who gives the little boy the money for the glass window, and, you know, Ahmed and Muhammad are friends. But overall, these kids are pretty much on their own. Um, 
it did it reminded me a bit of a film that I watched recently called Landscape in the Mist um which is by Theodore Angelopoulos a Greek director and it's also about two children they live in Greece but they think that their father who they've never met lives in Germany and so they take a train and then they take other means they take this journey to Germany to try to find their birth father and so they're having to like Ahmed like the little boy in Willow and Wind Willow and Wind they're having to really confront sort of a harsh and indifferent world a world of adults that don't always care about them and don't always want to help them or protect them or shield them and there is actually an image of a tree um, in Willow and Wind that reminded me of a scene in Landscape in the Mist when the two children come to their destination and they see this tree in the distance and there was a similar scene um, in Willow and Wind where there was a, a tree in the landscape. Landscape in the Mist was made in I think 1988 so about 12 years apart and I don't know if Telebi had any kind of knowledge of landscape in the mist or if it was any kind of you know in conversation with that film but it really reminded me I mean both are about children on this journey on this quest to do something both are about dealing with adults dealing with a very difficult and harsh world um, so that would maybe be another film if you're interested in films about children you know Overall, this film kind of ends on a hopeful note. It really ends with hope. The hope that he will get another pane of glass. And he will be able to install it in the window. Um, and he won't be expelled. So there's this sense that hope, that hope is there. That all is not lost. And that he's not going to give up. And he himself has the hope that he's going to be able to... Uh, change the glass but of course like a lot of well I mean Kiristami wrote it so it's like I'm always thinking about Kiristami um, there is that there's this open-ended ending where you don't know he may change the glass he may not it, it may not work out for him we don't know it's really a, a question mark so I thought these two films I didn't necessarily have um, a plan to watch them together but it just kind of happened that I did um, you know I was in a Kiristami mood so I watched Where's My Friend's House and then I was on Filmstruck and they have this series right now about children in film and they have about probably a dozen films or so about children and they're from all around the world and all different continents and countries and since I was watching Where Is My Friend's House, I saw that there was an Iranian film called Willow and Wind. And then I got even more intrigued when I saw that Kiristami wrote the screenplay for it. So I was like, well, these two, I think, would maybe complement one another. And so I watched Willow and Wind and just fell in love with it. As I said, I, I think the rain scene 
and the rain scene now that i think about it also reminds me of potter panchali because there is this gorgeous gorgeous one of my favorite scenes ever in potter panchali by satyajit ray where um apu who's the little boy he's the focus of the film he is him and his sister duga are in the rain and duga especially is playing in the rain she's throwing her hair everywhere it's like she just looks so ecstatic and and she luxuriates in the rain falling down and so it's also this moment in cinema of children just being so open to nature and so open to these ordinary experiences and making them extraordinary through their reaction through their ecstatic elated reaction to them and so the same way that duga is really in love with the rain and loves playing in the rain you see that with reza in willow and wind where he's standing outside at one point he's got his hands out he's like twirling he's like going in circles in the rain maybe he's not going in circles but he's standing out in the rain with his arms out like he's just so in love with it he's just so amazed by rain you know and um and it's and yeah that's a really interesting connection that i hadn't thought of until just this moment but those two scenes and how i'll probably always love both of those i love the rain there is something about the rain that's what so oh i don't know i don't know how to talk about it i loved the rain when i was a child it was it was i always wished that i could go out and play in the rain but it just seemed odd to do that you know I always thought people would look at me strangely like why is she out in the rain but I always wanted to sometimes at night when it was dark you know I would and it would be raining when I was at my house when I was at home um, I recently lost my house actually the last few years I had to move to another state and that's been a difficult experience that I've been thinking about a lot lately with my depression and stuff of losing a home, losing your roots, losing the place where you lived your entire life. Because I lived there for 26 years of my life in that one home. I lived there with my father I, who passed away in 2006. I, I grew up there. All my memories are there. I had to leave a lot of possessions and belongings behind. I lost a lot like it has completely destabilized me in a lot of ways and I've really been struggling to deal with it and so I used to love listening to the rain as it would hit the ceiling um, in our house we live in an apartment now and in, in another state like I said and you can't hear the rain as much because we're not on the top level we're on the bottom level so i don't get to hear the rain on the roof anymore i sometimes hear it at the window but when i was at home i used to go out on the porch sometimes and just stand there and put my hand out and i would touch the rain and and um yeah yeah i remember doing that just alone in the darkness, feeling the rain on my skin. And then the way it would make the earth, the earth smell and the air smell after it rained. I always loved that. It released, it releases this perfume almost that just envelops you.
It's really beautiful. At least it does here in the country, in the rural areas where there's a lot of grass and trees. It just It's like the smell of the earth. And it's just gorgeous. And um, So I've always loved the rain. And so when I saw Duca playing in it in Potter Panchali, and then when I saw Reza playing in it in Willow and Wind, it just moved me and it touched me to see the way the children engaged with with this rain and how enchanted they were by it and it just reminds us to sometimes things that we don't notice anymore because we're cynical or because we're older and we're just more used to it that maybe we can see those things anew you know maybe the trees and the and the clouds and all these things that we kind of take for granted or that we don't look at anymore or we don't notice then maybe sometimes what a great film can do or a great book or sort of any work of art is they it can refocus our attention back on those things that we overlook and that we don't pay attention to anymore and it can help us see those things in a new in a different way than we had seen them before and so I think that's what can happen but anyways I'm gonna stop here I think I've said everything I wanted to say about these two films and and I really enjoyed them loved their depiction of childhood of of morality of friendship of you know of all these things everything I've talked about so I appreciate you for listening uh, thank you so much until next time keep watching great films